If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, or you have a phone that has a Bible on it, um, open it up to 1 Peter 3, and let's start by just examining a little bit of the context of the passage and where we are. Uh, so Peter is writing to the chosen of Christ who are dispersed in what is now modern-day Turkey, um, and he's, they're, they're, they're residing as aliens and sojourners. We've been covering this for the past few weeks, um, and I guess months in, in some cases. Uh, he's encouraged us to gird our minds for actions uh, so that we can fix our hope completely on the grace that is brought to us by the revelation of Christ. So uh, if you've been following along with Phil Vischer's uh, Right Now Media for the Kids, uh, as he says, life is not always uh, sun and flowers. Sometimes it can rain for hours. Uh, so we can do more than hope, or mope, rather. We can do more than mope. Let's find our hope. And that's what Peter is really about, the idea of finding our hope in who Christ has made us, uh, in what Christ has done for us, the idea that we are now uh, an imperishable seed and our inheritance is kept for us in heaven. Last week, uh, Christian did a great job with a sensitive topic about submitting to authority. Um, and the authority that we were talking about last week was the idea of governmental authority, even if it's not a good government. Um, and even if it is something that we don't agree with, the idea is that it is a uh, God-ordained institution, and it's one that as long as it does not cause us to be in conflict with God's law, we are to submit to it. So to the point that it, it, is, uh, it doesn't cause us to be within conflict uh, to God's law, we submit to it. Uh, Christian did his, his sort of summary statement to me, or one of the most outstanding statements that he made, was that you cannot submit to authority, as Peter describes, unless you have submitted your heart to Christ. And that is a huge, huge statement going forward in all of this, and especially even in, in the topic that we're going to cover today. All right, so let's read 1 Peter 3. We're going to read it through and then pray, and then we'll try to dive into it. So 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Hopefully you're there and you can follow along with me. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and your pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are desperate for your word, your truth, your light in this world. We are desperate to align our lives with you, even though we don't want to many times. As we approach this topic today, Father, I pray that you would clear away the cultural and the personal lenses through which we view scriptures like this, and that we can view it in light of your character, in light of who you are. Father, I confess to being a fallible man uh, and one who is, uh, <laughs> does not follow your example so many times in my life. I pray, Father, that today your spirit would speak through me, that where 
my words speak, they would fall short and be forgotten immediately. And where your words speak, that they would come and embed themselves in our hearts and grow and take root and bloom into the beautiful flower that you have designed our creation to be. Father, give us humble hearts as we approach your scripture today. Remove the spirit of offense that is so easily found and help us learn to subject ourselves to Christ as the head, as the king. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. As I said in the prayer, this is a uh, controversial topic, and it, it is one that we often uh, bring our own cultural and personal lenses to it. So let's talk for just a minute about what that looks like, uh, what the lenses are that we can view the scripture through. Cultural lens, well, that'll include the traditions of our culture, it'll include the abuses of our culture, it'll include even the abuses of the churches within our culture. It'll also include the, the popularity, things that are popular right now, things that are trending or current events. Those are all lenses through which we often view Scripture. Our personal lens will include our experiences, our personal experiences in the past, in the present, our current household situations, uh, all of those things, our own personal beliefs. Those are the, that's the personal lens through which we often view Scripture. And then there's the gospel lens, and this is the correct lens that we're supposed to view Scripture through, and that's where we view things in light of who God is, his character, his nature, the fact that he is always just, the fact that he is always good. We just sang he's a good, good father. The fact that he has done everything to redeem us, to, to bring us back to him, and, and the fact that he is always just, he is always good. Those facts that we, we look at Scripture through his character and through what he's done for us, through the many things, and, and, and Scripture will not make sense unless we look at it through that light. When we start with Scripture, then we wrestle and work and pray our feelings into alignment with Scripture rather than viewing Scripture through our own personal and cultural lens and then trying to align Scripture to that. Does that make sense? So... Let's look really briefly at what our cultural lens is. Let's acknowledge the elephants in the room that are here um, and that are, are true and uncomfortable in many ways. Number one, cultural lens is the fact that misogyny still exists. Misogyny is, is like that inherent hatred or disparaging or uh, putting down of women. That exists, that's real. It's real inside the church. It's real outside in the world. We see it all over. We see it traditionally. We have seen it all throughout human history. Women are paid less still for the same jobs. We know that um, in our traditions, both culturally and, and within the church, there are many men who are domineering and would, quote unquote, put women in their place. Those are all things that exist within our cultural lens. And the roots that don't go that far back where we can see where people and men have treated women as economic property effectively. And they've made these, these situations of wives as, as objects or, or uh, possessions. Much more could be said on that. Um, I could spend quite a bit of time in a diatribe about that. And I know that I'm even on the wrong side of it to say much. So for even, even my own perspective is, is, is skewed by that cultural view. The biblical counterpoint to all this, and that's where we always have to do whatever view we look at, we have to look at the biblical counterpoint. So I'm going to cover very quickly some of the biblical counterpoints, knowing that the rest of the sermon is, is really from that biblical counterpoint. And, and that's the idea that none of this should have come from godly men or from a scriptural perspective. 
See, the idea is that, we'll expound much more on this later, but the idea is that biblical authority has nothing to do with domineering. It has nothing to do with putting down, right? Biblical authority is all about the upside-down kingdom. What did Christ say? He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. I came not as a, a master in that sense, right? He gave himself up in submission to the Father and for the sacrifice for the sake of his bride. So that's what biblical authority is going to look like. And we're going to talk more about that later. I promise I'll explain it better. Um, next cultural point is that we are in a post-feminist movement where our, our culture is seeking strict equality across all roles, where the ideal ethic is defined as that anything that a man can and should do, a woman should, could, can and should do, right? So the idea is that it's a complete equality where everyone should and can do the same roles. The biblical counterpoint to this, which is also controversial in, in today's culture because it's going against the today's culture, is that women and men are both created equal. No argument there. Absolutely equal. Both equal in, in essence, in divine nature, um, and, and dignity, and worth, right? So the difference is how we define equal. See, differing roles are not necessarily equal roles, right? It, it, it doesn't mean that the worth is any less. It doesn't mean that the, that the value is less. It just means that we take different roles. So men and women are created differently. No one can argue with that part, but it doesn't mean that they're not equal. So different doesn't have to mean or equivocate to equality. Next, gender is increasingly viewed as a social construct. This is the cultural lens that we're in right now. Gender is increasingly viewed as a social construct, and it's not something that is sacred, and therefore it can be chosen or changed at will. The biblical counterpoint to this is that we believe the gender assigned at, role, at birth is a birthright. You are created not by accident in the gender that you were born in. This is, we have a creator God who doesn't make mistakes. And so both genders are in the image of God. Both genders help to explain who God is and demonstrate his compassion, his powers, his, 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 his multifaceted triune spirit. So that's the biblical counterpoint to the idea that the gender is there. So we celebrate our differences and we value them equally. Next or a cultural view is that you must fight to take what's yours, loudly calling foul and protesting whenever oppressed. The biblical counterpoint says you lay down your life to serve others. Another cultural view is that we have free love. We have the right to, to have free love, which in itself is, is a misnomer. There's no such thing as free love. See, free love only comes about when you define love improperly. It, love means to serve and submit yourself to someone else, to put someone else's needs above your own. And if that's the case, then you can't have free love because by nature you are binding yourself to someone else. You're giving yourself to someone else, and therefore this idea of free love or the me marriage as it was defined in the New York Times is, is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, that's taking. You're stealing. All right. Personal lenses. I want you to think for just a minute about how you have viewed the roles of women and men and what distortions those roles, what distortions of those roles you've seen play out in your own life. 
See, in government institutions and in religious institutions and in entertainment industries and perhaps even in your own home, we have seen distortions and they have changed our viewpoints and they've affected what we think. The biblical counterpoint is that, again, we come to scripture first and then we establish our personal views. All right, so let's come to scripture. So following along with me, 1 Peter 3, we're going to start right, right away with the first word, likewise. Likewise, or in the same way as some translations say. Well, what does that mean? And it means that we have to look back and see what we were talking about just before that, right? So again, setting the context. Well, right before that, if we back up into the end of second, the second chapter of Peter, we see where it's talking about how Christ lived and acted, right? So in the same way that Christ lived and acted, how did he live and act? He, he didn't revile when he was reviled. That means when people were insulting him angrily, were criticizing him, he didn't return it in kind. He also bore our sin. Who, who is us? Who is our sin? That's the church, his bride. And, and what did he do for that? He died for that, and by his wounds, we're healed. But the idea is that while we were yet enemies, he chose to die for us in order to redeem us. And we sang in those songs today, uh, this morning, we talked about that. We talked about the idea that he looked through the sorrow to the joy, right? So in the same way that Christ lived, that's likewise. That's what we're supposed to do. We are in the same way that we're su to submit to uh, government authorities or uh, masters to your, to your uh, I'm sorry, uh, servants to your masters. Those ideas that because we're submitted to Christ, because of what Christ's example is, that is the likewise that we're talking about here. So in light of who Christ is, of what he's done for you, and his character, likewise, wives, be subject. Okay, and here it is. Be subject. That's the, that's the, that's the major offense, isn't it? Right? Be subject. The idea is, is being submissive, being subject to put oneself under. This, like, raises the hairs on the back of your neck if you're, and, and you're ready to, to, to go to war, Balake. You know? The idea is that, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you got that, Dave. All right. Um, the idea here is, is offensive. And why is this offensive? This is the major tripping point. It's offensive because we don't like to be in subjection to anyone. We don't like to submit ourselves to the king of the universe in our own flesh, right? Let alone to someone who is probably hairier, smellier, and rather dull-witted, you know, as a husband can be at times, right? I'm speaking of myself personally, not, of course, not anyone else. But. So the idea of being subject to that seems ridiculous, and it's offensive. But again, in Christ, we can begin to understand that. So to start to understand what submission is, let's spend just a minute on this word. Let's talk about what it's not first. All right? Let's talk about what it's not. And I stole all of these, or at least most of them. Uh, but number one, it's not agreeing on everything. Submission does not mean that you as a wife have to agree with everything that your husband says. How do we know this? Well, look at the passage. This passage is talking about a woman whose husband is a non-believer. They don't agree on faith. Faith is a pretty important part of life, right? What you believe, the very tenets of your faith, is a very important part of life. So clearly, you don't have to believe the same thing as your husband in order to be submissive to him. So that's number one. It's, it's possible to be submissive and not agree. Number two, submission does not mean that you leave your brain at the altar. 
this is part of number one, and that if you're not agreeing, it means that you're thinking, but it needs to be stated very clearly here. It doesn't mean that you leave your brain at the altar. Any man who says, I do the thinking in this marriage, is sick and needs help. And I mean that seriously. They need to come to the elders or they need to come to their DG leader and they need to say, well, I thought this is how it works. And the DG leader needs to bring them to scripture and talk about the value of women. Okay? So women, they have a mind. They think, I have been taught so many things by my wife. It would be incredibly arrogant of me to believe that I couldn't learn from her. I love her mind. She has a brilliant mind. The way that she can interpret things and see things and have emotional IQ that, that I lack desperately, those are all things that I need, and I learn from that. So I, the, the idea that you check your brain and that you don't think and that you don't suss out Scripture for yourself and, and dig into your faith and dig into the things of the world is, is ridiculous. So it, submission does not mean that you leave your brain at the altar. Number three, it doesn't mean that the husband always gets his way. That is not what submission is. Ooh. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I was trying to think of an example of this um, as I was writing my sermon yesterday uh, with, uh, with a, a puppy on my lap. I was recalling the fact that it wasn't that long ago that I said, uh, you know, I really don't want a puppy um, because they're, they're smelly and, and they, they, you know, they have to go to the bathroom all the time and, and they're a lot of work. And I do like dogs, but, you know, it just doesn't seem like that's a load that we want to take on as a family. And, and over the years, that got worn down. And so yesterday I was petting our, our puppy and I, and I was remembering the fact that, that I said, well, I finally relented, and, and I said, okay, that sounds, sounds like a good idea. Let's go ahead and get a dog. It'll be fun. And, and uh, I said, but there's one thing. I just want to name it. You know, it's fine. I just want, I just want to be the one that named it because I really like the name D-O-G. D-O-G spelled D-O-G. And, and I thought that was, like, kind of quippy and fun. And so as I was petting my dog Henry this morning, I, I was... I was trying to think about how, you know, I could give an example of yielding to things that aren't important and not getting your way in a marriage, and I just couldn't come up with anything. But uh, hopefully you get the idea that, that it doesn't mean that you always get your way. There are thousands of decisions that you make in a marriage that, that aren't about authority. They're not about biblical rightness or wrongness, and it doesn't mean that the wife is to submit to everything on that. Mutual submission. There are times where things are more important to my wife than they are to me. I mean, by all means. Let her have the, let her have that you know those those kinds of things and and she does the same for me so the idea of 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 yielding to each other for the sake of happiness for the sake of peace all those things can happen provided that it doesn't come into conflict with God's law again all of that is under this banner all right next um, does not mean submission does not mean avoiding the effort or the means to change the husband what's the whole point of this passage. That by, any, by, by her behavior, he may be one to Christ. That's changed. She's praying and trying to change him so that he comes to Christ. If your husband is in sin, then yes, it is right for you to want him to change, to lovingly try to uh, show examples and bring that, about that correction um, and to bring him back to Christ. It's good for that. Uh, submission number four or five. We're on five now. Number five, those of you who are counting along. Um, number five does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. And again, that's one of the things we're talking about in this, this whole thing, in that we can be submissive to an authority to the point that it takes us in conflict with God's law. See, 
again, here, Christ is Lord, and if there's a choice between following your husband or obeying Christ, if those two come in conflict, you must choose Christ. So as we see in this situation, the wife is uh, being submissive but still doesn't agree with the husband's faith or view of faith and view of, of who the creator is. So the key here is that it's not done with a haughty demeanor, uh, a haughty demeanor rather, but it's one that's done for a, with a longing for him to choose what's right, to follow, uh, to follow the good path so that she might follow him. So it's done with that, you know, husband, I, I love you, I want to be submissive to you, I want to respect you, but in this area, you're leading me away from what my Lord and God, the creator of the universe, has told me is right. All right, number six, it does not mean getting all of her spiritual strength through her husband. Submission does not mean getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband. In the text, her husband is a non-believer, so what spiritual strength could he possibly gain from her? Right? My bride is almost always ahead of me spiritually. <laughs> it's true. She's almost always ahead of me spiritually. She has an intimacy with God, and she's going to want to crawl under the table when I'm saying all this. Uh, but she has an intimacy with God that makes me want more intimacy with God. She has a relationship with God that is so close that she hears from him, she speaks with him in a way that, that I have yet to achieve. I'm, I'm praying that it happens, and there are times where I get glimpses of it, but she constantly makes me want to strive for more and, and, and reach out more, for more of God. I encourage her. I try to make ways to, to give her more time to, to pursue her spiritual, uh, uh, her spiritual relationship, but she does not gain her spiritual strength from me alone. She gains her spiritual strength from her relationship with God and her own time. If you're looking to your spouse, if you're looking to your spouse before you look to God, you will create an idol out of your marriage, and you'll create an idol out of your spouse. And as a result, you will be looking to your, your, your spouse to do things and fulfill things that only God can do. And if you do that, you're either going to crush your spouse under the expectations, or you'll become bitter because your spouse will always fall short. Does that make sense? Good. All right. Um, So this clearly applies to everyone, whether you're single or not, by the way, um, that you have got to get your relationship and your marriage to Christ right first before you can even begin to think about your relationships here on earth. All right, number seven, it, submission does not mean acting in fear. Now, this is a, a part of the, the second part of verse six that we're going to get to a little bit more. But the idea is that if you look at uh, an abused pet or an abused person, and they are responding or acting out of fear, there's a problem there. That is not what submission is. That is being uh, abused. And abuse is a real thing. And if you are struggling or anyone you know is struggling with abuse, please, by all means, seek help immediately. Come see one of the elders. If you're a, a woman and you don't feel, talking, uh, feel comfortable talking to one of the elders, talk to your DG leader. Talk to the wives of the elders, my wife, uh, Jess, or Bill's wife, Gina, Christian's wife, Elena, Steve's wife, Bonnie. Any of us will, would be happy to talk to you, but please immediately get help. That's emotional or physical abuse. That is a real thing. I, just, let me just leave that there for now, but know that that is not what we're talking about here. At no point should abuse of emotion or physical part be a part of any marriage, period. Okay, 
number eight, does not mean, submission does not mean that the wife is less of anything. It does not mean that she's less intelligent. It doesn't mean that she has less abilities. It doesn't mean that she has less spiritual giftings. We see all through the New Testament the fact that women are given the same spiritual giftings as men. In fact, many commentators will talk about the, fa- the, the, the culture of the New Testament being so empowering to women and such a change from everything that, w- that came before it that it was the reason that Paul and Peter had these these statements in scripture so that it just reminded them that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater that the gender roles are a good thing and they are divinely ordained they're created to give us an expression of of who God is but that the idea is it, it doesn't mean that we that we suffer inequality there but in that culture at that time women were were so abused that now suddenly in all of this freedom that, that we, we find in the, in the Gospels and the Scriptures, the fact that Christ empowers women to preach the, the, the good news or to, uh, to go out and proclaim the good news of, of Christ, it, that, that women are part of the, good, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Great Commission, um, all of those things are, are hugely empowering, but he reminds us that there are roles here that are still good. And that's what the idea of, of headship and authority is, is about. Okay, um, just one final note on that. If you ask any of the guys in my DG, as we've talked over the, over the weeks and months, we're all, we're all very willing to admit that our wives are way better than us at most things. <laughs> so, all right. So what is submission? What is submission? It's the idea that there's a divine calling of a wife to honor and to affirm her husband's leadership and to carry it through with all of her gifts. But just like our submission to anything else, again, it's only to the point that it doesn't cause you to disobey what God has commanded. All right, let's look at another scripture as an example of this. So look up Philippians 2, 5 through 9. This should be really familiar to you. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he didn't count it as something to be held on to or leveraged. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, Jesus is ontologically equal. Ontologically is our $20 word of the day. It means being the same, or we're talking about in being and in essence, right? So in being and in essence, Jesus is the same as the Father. He is equal to the Father, but he didn't count that equality as something to be held on to. He let it go, and he emptied himself in order to serve and be obedient to the Father and to redeem his bride. So Jesus' submission then leads directly to God being glorified. All right, so where are we? Likewise, wives, be subject. Okay, let's go to the next one. To your own husband. Your own husband. You are not, as a woman, subject to every man out there. And this is something that our cultural lens has distorted in its view of the church, that women are lesser than somehow men. You are subject to your own husband. You're not subject to every other husband out there. If you are single, 
You're not subject to a man out there just because he's a man. That's not how this works. Okay? So you're subject to your own husband. Next. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if they do not obey the word, so that, in other words, even if they're outside of the faith, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, without a word, it doesn't necessarily mean without speaking because we know that how does belief come? By hearing, right? And how, does hear, how can you hear something that's not spoken? But there's also a large part of behavior that can win it over and can speak volumes. So your behavior can often speak more than constantly pushing material and, and uh, your faith product out there or, or, or uh, you know, hey, you need to believe this or you need to believe that. That can become nagging, whereas a gentle, respectful behavior can win him over. All right. That they may be one without a, a word. Uh, where, I lost my place. Maybe one without a word. Uh, by your pure, uh, respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which God's sight is very, impressive, is very precious. Listen, by the world standard, brides are never more beautiful than on their wedding day, right? They have youth. They have a team of women behind them doing makeup, helping them pick out dresses. They've been, you know, probably starving themselves for months to fit in the smallest dress. All of these things have happened on their wedding day by the world standards. So by the world standards, that beauty is at the pinnacle at that point when they're married, and then it begins to fade, as it says in, at the end of uh, the ch first chapter of Peter, um, where it says all flesh is, is like uh, the, the grass of the field and its flower will fall off, right? So, but by God's standards, by the true beauty, by what, what actual beauty is, as you're steeped in the word, as you grow together, it's that, that imperishable, imperishable beauty. I can't say that this morning. Imperishable. Say it like Anyway. Uh, imperishable beauty is, is what really comes through. Uh, it's well-documented fact in my house that my, my wife's eye crinkles and laugh lines are some of my favorite features about her. Because when I look at her, I see not just, a, a, not just the physical beauty, although it's there, um, but I also see 20 years of stresses and laughter and tears and joy that we have spent together. And that has made her, in all honesty, far more beautiful today than she was on our wedding day, although she was stunning on our wedding day. <laughs> so, uh, totally true, totally true. The outer garment will always fade. Our flesh is always slipping into entropy. But the beauty that is imperishable remains when you're within the word. All right, one final note on scriptural context, and that's, again, to remind you that culture is that in, in, in this new culture that Christ founded in the New Testament uh, of, of equality, Paul and Peter are here reminding us again of, of the idea that there are good things in gender roles, okay? All right, let's move very quickly into husbands because I know I'm running out of time, and that's really where all of this should start. Because ultimately, I haven't met a godly woman yet that has a problem submitting to a godly man. And if you are leading well, 
there's no problem here because who are, who, are you, who are you acting like? You're acting like Christ. Is it easy to submit to Christ? Well, not in our own flesh, but when you're godly and when you're following, it's super easy because you're willing to submit to somebody who's willing to die for you. So let's really quickly go into that. All right, likewise, again, we're all in the this, this same thing. So likewise, verse 7, if you're following along, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. <laughs> Number one, showing honor to the woman. In an under, you're living with life, uh, your wife in an understanding way. Sorry, number one is an understanding way. Understanding what? Understanding implies a knowledge. What are we in knowledge of? Well, it's what he's going to talk about. There's two things. Number one, I think he's, you know, he's, he's clearly talking about the idea of understanding why we are to honor our wives. And then it's also literally in an understanding way where you are trying to understand who your wife is. Although at times it can be more of a challenge. Again, I told you we are often slow and dull-witted as, uh, as a sex. All right. Um, firstly, understanding what the text says here, we're showing honor. Who are we showing honor to? We're showing honor for two reasons. Number one, that she is the weaker vessel, okay? This is offensive, right? She's a weaker vessel. What do you mean she's a weaker vessel? All right, weaker vessel, er, weaker. The idea is that there's two comparisons. That means that we're both vessels. So there are two vessels here that we're talking about. This one is the wife is the weaker vessel, indicating that the husband is the stronger. Well, what's a vessel that we're talking about? And, and that, I think we have to go back to 2 Corinthians 4, and we have to look at the idea that we carry these treasures in jars of clay, another word for jar, vessel, right? So the idea is the vessels that we're talking about are our bodies, our physical bodies. So I think literally here, the idea of weaker vessel is referring to the fact that the female sex on the whole is weaker than the male sex on the whole. Generalities here, I'm sure that there are women that can beat me in arm wrestling, particularly since I've broken my arm. All right, but if you look at professional sports and things like that, there's a reason why in all Olympics, they're, they're generally separated by sexes. I think most people would not be offended by the fact that men are generally speaking faster, stronger in, in those physical abilities. So as the weaker vessel, the less physically strong vessel, we, that should in, inspire in us as men the idea that we need to provide protection, that we need to cherish, that we need to begin uh, very be, being gentle, right? So all of these things, we get this, this idea in Ephesians 5. We talk about it, uh, nourishing and cherishing our wives as our own bodies. All of those things are part of what is inspired in our honor of, of the woman as the weaker vessel. The second part of it. The second part of, the, of, of why we are to honor her uh, comes in the idea that we are co-heirs, right? We are co-heirs in the grace of life that is to come. So if she is a co-heir, that means that she is just as valuable in the kingdom as you are, right? And not to muddy the waters, but in Romans we talk about the idea that there is neither man nor woman nor Greek nor Gentile nor, nor slave nor master in Christ, right? The idea is that that's all pointing towards the the, the inheritance that we're to receive. There's no second place in the kingdom of heaven, right? There's no, there's no primogenitor where the firstborn son gets everything. That's why it it's constantly refers to us as, uh, as, as sons of Christ, not necessarily just sons and daughters of Christ, right? So the idea is that there's no second place there. So as co-heirs, that means that your wife, the woman, 
is someone who is going to inherit all of what her father owns. Her father is the creator of the universe and is immeasurably rich and, and immeasurably powerful, and she is the inheritor of all of that. Therefore, we should have an awe as, and a reverence. So we have two things. We have um, the, our honor shaped by the, the, to the, to the two sides, the weaker vessel leading to tenderness, protection, provision for your bride, and the co-heir leading to the fact that we honor with awe a daughter of the king set to inherit a measurable wealth and being granted the abilities and insight just like you. So the idea of actually trying to understand her is the last part of that. Uh, and, and that's the idea that, husbands, can you name three things that your wife loves to do? Think just for a second. Can you do that very quickly? Sleep? Let's say three positive things, three positive things that your wife loves to do. What makes your wife happy? Because I guarantee your wife can immediately say three things that make you happy. All right? So yeah, that's good. All right. Make sure that you understand. Make sure that you understand her, okay? Are you, remember, one of the greatest desires of every heart is to know and to be known, to know and to be known. So husbands, take the time to make sure that you know your wife, to understand her. That's why the, 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 the curse, depart from me, I never knew you, by the one person in the universe that really matters, that's why that curse carries so much weight, is because we desire to know and be known, right? All right, so understanding. Quickly, quickly, sorry. Keep moving. All right. So we honor her as the weaker vessel and as a co-heir with grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. This should give you pause and say, what in the world is he talking about here? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, your prayers could be hindered for a couple reasons. First Peter 3.12 says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So the sin of dishonoring your wife can close the ears of the Lord to your prayers. Right? Next one, Matthew 18.19. If two or more of you agree on earth, then it shall be done by my Father in heaven. So the disunity of you and your wife negates that promise of Matthew 18, 19, and now creates a, a, a situation where you may not be asking in unity, and therefore, again, that promise of will be done by my father may or may not be part of it. Okay, a broken relationship ultimately makes it hard to kneel together. Does that make sense? So that's the, the big part of the hindered prayers there. Okay, very quickly, Ephesians 5. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. And let's look. For the wives, we looked at Philippians 2, you know, where Christ emptied himself and submitted. For husbands, let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and, 
and a father and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and what I am saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and uh, the wife so that she respects her husband. Husbands are playing the Christ role here as well. So wives get to play the Christ role and how Jesus submitted to the Father. Husbands play the Christ role and how Christ totally sacrificed himself, gave himself up in order to serve and, and redeem his bride. Okay? Both playing uh, the, the role of Christ here. So done correctly, this is a huge evangelical tool. Marriage is a huge example. That's what he was just saying. This is mysteries profound. I'm saying that it, it, it refers to Christ in the church. This is a metaphor of Christ in the church. It's so that we can gain an understanding, so that we can be a witness to what Christ in the church has to say. Last point, authority. What does a biblical authority look like? Matthew 20, 25 says this. But Jesus called to them uh, to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You must be your, their servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, serve, to, to, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does biblical authority look like? It means being willing to give up your life to serve others. It's that upside-down king, uh, uh, kingdom. Again, the biblical authority in context does not mean that you get to dictate or not listen or even that you have the last word, right? It means that you are there to serve, to nourish, to cherish, to uplift, to find every way possible to steer her in the correct path of, of the Lord and to, to listen to her as she does the same for you. Biblical authority is something that she gives you as a gift as she understands who Christ is, and it's something that you receive with humility as you serve her with your life. Which is the greater sacrifice? To submit to authority or to give up your life in order to serve? Husbands, you are to give up your life in order to serve, just as Christ gave up his life to serve us. Okay, again, done correctly, Christian marriage is a tremendous apologetic vehicle. It's a tremendous evangelical vehicle. People live in close contact with you. They see how you respond to each other. They see how repentance and forgiveness is either demonstrated or not demonstrated within your family. These are a huge example and pointer to who God is and his character, his triune nature. Remember, the term helper is used to refer to the Holy Spirit, right? I will send you a helper. The Holy Spirit is God. It's equal with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, but they take on different roles in order to pour out and serve each other. The Father glorifies the Son as the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes and glorifies them both and helps us to understand and glorify them as well. All of these things, just as they, they, they take on roles, we take on roles here in order to demonstrate that. 
I'm hoping some of that made sense. I'm hoping that it wasn't too offensive um, in, in as much as it, my own words were offensive. Um, if anything is so, something that you're wrestling with, please come talk to one of us. Uh, please come talk to the elders. Any, any, any one of us uh, would be happy to spend some time praying with you. There are times where we can be offended by the person. Um, so if I said something offensive that is not of Scripture, I apologize. If it is of Scripture and you're offended by Scripture, that you got to take up with God. <laughs> but I'm happy to work through it with you. All right, there's a couple questions. If you can spend just a few minutes at your table, and then we'll close in prayer.